Good evening. It's nice to be here in Bristol having a chance to meet some new people and to talk about things which fascinate me. What fascinates me most is that every country has a very ancient tradition of mythology, of stories, and besides that mythological tradition is a magical tradition and for a long time in this century people have gone to the east to seek for wisdom they have learned the meditation techniques from India and tried to follow the paths of the eastern mystics in various ways and then gradually a tide turned because people looked at their own country and said well as India has this tradition of meditation, of hero tales and stories of the gods, what about our own land? And they began to rediscover the popular side of Celtic mythology and, and the underlying magic that goes with it. The way that we have it now is a huge collection of stories songs, ballads, pieces of history attached to places which represent fragments from a vast tapestry of knowledge. Because we're used to the media bringing us information in a, a, in a very instantaneous sort of way, television and this kind of thing, we forget that our ancestors were equally interested in what was going on around them. and although news might have taken some weeks to travel from one place to another that news still travelled and it was carried about by news bringers of various sorts and many of the carriers of news were also the bards now there are lots of historical arguments about when the druids arrived let me just briefly put you in the picture as far as the history of the Celtic people goes. The word Celt is actually derived from a Greek word, Keltoi, which was what the Greek people who visited Britain and Western Europe called the people they found there. It wasn't what the people who lived here called themselves. What they called themselves, we don't actually know. They weren't into writing records of what they did. I mean, most, most, if you study the history of anywhere and you say to people, I mean, it's just as true today as it would be thousands of years ago, you go along to people and you say, you know, who are you? They say, well, you know, we, we, we're Bristolians or, or I'm a Londoner. You, you say you're from the place or your your family name, whatever it is, you identify yourself. And the, the Celtic people, using that as a broad term for the people of Britain generally in the last couple of, I would say thousands of years before Christ, but probably the last thousand years particularly, these people were more or less settled here. They were, they were quite a secretive lot actually. Um, you get this from, from Roman map making. The, the, there's quite a, a sort of in, in joke, which was probably an in joke in about 100 AD when the, the maps were made of places that the, the Romans would come along to the, the local inhabitants and point at the river and say what's that and the uh, using the, the Welsh word or the Celtic word the, um, the local inhabitant would say it's the river Avon so that's why there are loads of river avens all over the place it's simply the word for river you know if you can't if, if the Romans were so daft they couldn't recognise a river when they saw one then uh, they were on a pretty, you know, a pretty clueless lot. So we don't have a literary history which identifies who the people were. We don't know exactly where they came from. They seem to have travelled around and their main personal allegiance was to their tribal leader and to their, their local king or queen. Women had a very good place in in Celtic society, they were completely equal to men, they could choose who they married, they inherited land. Um, and then it came unstuck because the Romans didn't like any of these ideas and, and tried very hard to suppress it and make male dominance. But as far as we can tell from 
the traditions that survive I mean, how you came to have the Queen Boudicca so we're thinking of people who were tribal who lived in small villages of nice round huts mostly the Celts preferred circles to squares they were perfectly capable of building square buildings if they wanted to but they, most of the buildings that bits of survive seem to be circular they didn't build the stone circles or the stone rows or any of those things but they would certainly have appreciated the specialness of such places as Stonehenge and within the Celtic society apart from the, the ruling classes as it were you have a whole series of priestly cl classes um, which are known in English nowadays as, as bards, ovates and druids uh, this isn't a kind of class distinction nor was it really grades you didn't start off as a bard and end up as a druid these were three sort of different kind of specialities within a, a general framework these people were learned they were the teachers, the law bringers and because the the history and the knowledge of the people was nearly all entirely oral they were the keepers of the long poems and the long stories which retained the um, history of the clan and its activities and the stories of the heroes so you have quite a collection of interwoven um, people within any given area most people were involved in farming and they must have been quite leisured because if you look at the art for which I mean the Celts are particularly well known for their artwork in metals, in weaving um, I mean the, the things that we see as Scottish tartan is, is kind of Celtic invention that they got fed up with weaving just plain colours and found they could weave stripes and lines and there is um, a certain amount of evidence to say that the, the kings of the Celts were allowed to wear 12 colours which is probably all the colours they could make by different vegetable dyes and things and the Druids were allowed to wear 10 so you can imagine these sort of not these white robed characters with sickles standing under oak trees but sort of garishly dressed um, long haired characters in brilliant coloured plaids of reds and blues and greens and yellows and all the colours they could possibly weave or have embroidered onto their clothes so quite a colourful lot and they preserved their stories and their history in to, to call it songs is not quite the it's not quite correct the idea was that the stories were told accompanied by music now because we're, we're used to information telling us all there is to know about a thing but in, in much earlier times before the written word took over our whole consciousness I mean it's very hard to read a book and do anything else whereas if somebody's telling you a story or reading you a story or in, in today's world you're listening to the radio you can quite often hear something and, and think something different or do something different at the same time and part of this idea of splitting your awareness was part, a, a rather important part of these bardic stories because on one level they were pure entertainment that the, the bard would come along perhaps with some new story he'd learnt from somewhere or some piece of news which had just been written into poetry and he would sit there with his little harp and, and, and play a tune and he would be telling you the story and on one level you would just be hearing this as a piece of information and saying oh great you know uh, we've won a battle or there's a new supply of pigs coming to market next week or what, you know, whatever was really bothering people but there would also be the idea of being able to perceive at much greater depth I think the nearest we can get to it nowadays is if we're immersed in a very good book where you are so absorbed in the, the text of the book that you actually see the pictures and from recent research by John Matthews and his wife who's a, a very fine singer using the old bardic forms of music they have discovered that by using this sort of accompaniment um, I mean it isn't quite a tune accompanying the words in, in the same way that a modern song would be but you have the idea of the tune which enhances or it's rather more like the music that you play to silent films so it sort of gives the idea of the action and they found that by listening to the, the spoken word against this kind of bardic harp music 
you actually see the pictures and, and experience far more of the story of one of these sort of great long rambling mythological tales than you would do if you were just hearing the words or if it was just a song or just a piece of poetry so that there is obviously another level to the continuation of music and song and the bardic tradition so back to the idea of, of these bards, ovates and druids the druids were more or less the priests they conducted the, the sort of worship they usually supposed to be sun worshippers um, as far as it's possible to determine most, most of the records about what the druids actually did were written by the Romans who were very anti-druid so it's, it's quite hard to deci decide what they really did believe but they took natural things as symbols of their gods they believed that the sun in the sky was a symbol of the great creative principle they also had a concept of multi-levels of worlds which you get again in Norse mythology of the world tree going up through levels of, of different um, different levels of, of existence and the, the druids seem to understand the world as if it were like a great ball of many layers but in the middle you have a black hole it's, it's quite hard to explain in modern terms but the idea is that in the centre of the, the visible solid material world there is a, a hole through the middle called Anun it's usually referred to as the underworld I mean when it's interpreted in modern um, in modern mythology the Arthurian legends King Arthur goes to Anun he goes to the other world and this is the place of creation it's the place of potential and it, it's not chaos in the sense of things falling apart but chaos before things have been created and out of this Anun out of this other world comes all the things of the material world which is called Abred which is this world the material physical world of all the, the good things the beautiful things the sad things and this is the, the plane of existence that we exist on beyond that is Gwynfid which is the place of, of the blessed ones it's the sort of realm which in modern terminology you'd think of where the angels are the sort of first level of heaven but these angels are not these spirits and powers are not beyond communication with um, our bread with, with our level but there is a communication between the two and beyond that on the outside of this sort of ball with a hole through the middle um, you have Kaigant which is the place of God of creation so you have the creator on the outside and then the layer of, of the sort of blessedness a kind of heaven I mean it is somewhere that you go between lives and, and gain um, understanding about your life and so on but there's also there is a communication between that and, and the ordinary living world and then through the centre of this somehow out of a cave or out of some inner level comes all of creation and that, that there is a perpetual flow of new it's quite an interesting sort of cosmic theory that from the middle things are, are still flowing out and flowing out towards the creator and somehow they recycle back in and up through the middle again but um, this gives quite a complicated idea so you had the druid priests who conducted their ceremonies they worked particularly with the sun as I say as a symbol they saw the sun as a symbol of creation all the things that they saw as holy were natural things and this might be something as simple as a tree the, the druid priests didn't have any kind of structure there's another thing the, the Romans complained about you know how can these people be serious they worship under trees you know for heaven's sake we've been building temples and chapels to our gods for millennia and there's these primitive Celts you know standing out under an oak tree in the pouring rain looking for mistletoe you know. and they, they really couldn't understand the, the, the simplicity with which the, the Druids recognised the power of nature and in fact quite a lot of the modern advances in I don't know if it's, you call it an advance but a, a change in religious outlook a lot of people are going back to a more simple natural religion because they, they really find they are more comfortable 
worshipping a, a god or a goddess under a tree than, than they would be in a church or a, some other kind of religious building. The Druids seem to have had eight main festivals which break up the year into sort of six weeks six week spans which is quite nice. Four of these are very very old and happen at times where nature is doing something fairly obvious. I mean May Day is probably most I mean we have just gone through May Day and you know despite holes in the ozone layer the beginning of May is when the whole of the countryside greens up within a couple of weeks from being pretty well winter, I mean except in, well, England, you know, where it's gone back to winter again. But um, if you look in your garden, your roses have suddenly come into blossom where they shouldn't have for months. But here we have a distinct clearing of the air and, and new greenness. And at the other half of the year, you have the festival which in popular mythology nowadays is, is Halloween, where the first frosts of winter are happening the end of October when the, the leaves really are falling off the trees and, and nature is going into rest and these are two very clearly recognisable times a beginning and an ending and to divide those again you have in August the beginning of the harvest I mean the Celts certainly grew corn in fact they invented quite an interesting kind of combine harvester which was pushed by a couple of horses or well they weren't really big horses ponies and it had like cones and this was pushed through the corn just at the level of the where, where the head of corn is at the top of the stem there's a very weak point and so this, this harvester was, was pushed through the fields of corn and it just snapped off the ears of the corn and left the straw standing or the straw was used either to plough back into the land of the fertiliser or, it was, or livestock were turned out into it and they would graze it and they would eat the weeds and things underneath and fertilise the, the ground and tread it down and break up the lumps. And uh, I think Prince Charles was mentioning this device recently and, and you know, it's suddenly been rediscovered that if you push a, a sort of cone effect through corn it will just break off the heads of the corn so you don't have to worry about the straw. And of course you, it's let, you, know, you don't need such a big machine because it then just gathers the corn ears into a, a basket or a bag or something and you winnow it at your leisure during the winter months. So they were actually quite clever. Well, they, they invented all sorts of useful things. You know, a lot of the, the sort of life they lived, far from being sort of cruel and crude and primitive, was actually quite sophisticated. They had very elegant boats. You've only got to go down to Glastonbury and in the museum there, there are some beautiful dugout boats which perfectly effective. And the Celts probably travelled quite a lot by by river and by waterway because although the Romans cut down quite a lot of the forest, I mean they, they caused the first industrial pollution by chopping down most of the forest that covered Britain for charcoal to smelt the iron which they happened to find here. The uh, Celtic people, before they were bothered by the Romans, had to travel around from one settlement to another and most of their settlements were on hilltops. And you go to Salisbury, just around, beside Bath, probably a lot of the hilltops, Brandon Hill for all I know was probably some sort of local high point of Celtic culture and, and the, the valleys would have been very much like you see across the river thick woods with ivy and vines tangling it all up, you know, sort of primitive jungle so the easiest way in fact to get around was certainly by, by water so boats would have been quite important to them they also must have built a few roads because if you've ever tried driving a chariot or pushing a bicycle across a field you'll know that uh, you do need a fairly flat surface and, and for driving a chariot, which the Celts were particularly good they must have had something to drive them on they probably had chariot races as well because they were very sporting people and, and when there was a funeral part of the funeral games consisted of all sorts of sporting challenges they used to have a sort of I, something rather like the Olympic Games with chariot races and foot races and they used to have the, the fully dressed Celtic hero with his plaid outfit and his little bronze sword was supposed to be able to leap over a, um, a barrier as high as his shoulder and duck under something as low as his knee without breaking his stride so you can imagine some sort of rather interesting hurdle races with them 
herring along and leaping over things. They were good at throwing things as well. I mean, not only spears. And, and the Druids, in fact, used bows, but they only used them for, for putting criminals to death. Um, another sort of unpopular Roman idea about the Druids' religious practices of burning people in wicker baskets. Um, I think this is pure invention. Certainly the idea of making figures of greenery at different times of year and putting them on a bonfire or chucking them into the sea is, is a well-recorded kind of idea that if you want to worship nature, if you want to give thanks to some kind of natural activity, then what you do is you build a huge figure of flowers or greenery, just as we still do today. You go and see the Battle of Flowers in Jersey or somewhere where you've got enormous great floats of flowers and and greenery and quite a lot of places in Britain they still have festivals where people are dressed in either um, tri uh, sort of pyramids of flowers well dressing all these things that are, are sort of latter day versions of, of probably druidic practices the idea was you made a figure of a natural power energy god goddess whatever you care to call it and then you would chuck it on a fire and commit its spirit into this other world so that it could then ensure that you had a successful harvest or that your sheep were particularly prolific or whatever. So, again, it, it's a survival. But what has survived probably most clearly is the, the story of the quest, the hero journey. Because this was part of the way that the, the young people grew up that they had to make some kind of pilgrimage to a special place or they had to go and find some mythical being or go to some rival tribe and have a battle in order to uh, prove themselves and the, the, the whole cycle of stories of heroes going off and doing improbable things came down to us through the Arthurian cycle we uh, probably fairly familiar with it. I mean, most people have seen Camelot or Excalibur. And yet this is the, the kind of latter-day version of a very strong tradition that the hero was sent away from his home. I mean, a lot of the wealthier people, well, it's not wealth in terms of money, but the, the upper classes of their day would send their youngsters to be fostered in, a, in another tribe or in another part of their own clan so that the, the youngsters grew up learning manners they learnt all the skills of fighting or agriculture whatever from other people other than their own family so this was really quite a good system because it gave people an opportunity to meet other people and, and mix with them and, and learn things about their, their ways and then bring it back into their own community. But the idea of going off on a sort of hero quest for some improbable thing has come down to us within the Arthurian legend. Although Arthur historically was around in 600, about 600 AD, and therefore he was really a resurgence Celt, if you like to think of it like that. I mean, after the Romans packed up and went home, then the, the Celts made quite a comeback before they had to fight off the Saxons which they didn't do terribly well but the, the stories which Arthur participates in are really a, a, a 6th century retelling of things that happened many centuries before that so the idea of the quest of going into Anun and in, in the earliest of the Arthurian stories Arthur goes into Anun not to bring back treasure he brought back pigs which shows how much how important agriculture was because the, that this was a new animal to be brought into domestication I mean, the wild pigs, wild boar have certainly existed in this part of the world along with wolves and bears and other jolly things that the wild pigs were brought into cultivation as it were and this became quite an important piece of um, the economics of the situation but there are a whole series of stories where the hero doesn't only go somewhere which is fairly obviously still on the same landmass, but he quite often has to go into an other world. And this may be a reflection of an initiation cycle. 
that the hero is actually not not going to physical places, but as shamans or magicians, witch doctors, whatever, have, have done all through history, they go into another state of being where they learn the secrets quite often of things that are useful, like healing or new battle tactics perhaps, or how to work with nature in some way, I mean how to tame animals for domestic use or to work with the forces of nature so that their tribe benefits. And there are a whole series of cycle stories where the hero not only seems to go into this other world, but he also changes shape. One of the most familiar stories is the story of Cridwin. Cridwin was a Celtic goddess. She was, she was a powerful sorceress. Uh, you can read that how you like, but she dwelt somewhere in the West Country. Her name means White Sow, so again you're getting this connection with pigs. pigs. Pigs are quite important in this part of the world. If you go and look at the legends of Bath, you've got Gladwood and his pigs. And I think there are resonances in that story of the, the Caridwin story. Anyway, Caridwin had a couple of children. She had a daughter, Kriawi, and she also had a, a, a son called Avagvu, and he was the ugliest child you ever could imagine. And she knew that this wasn't going to do a lot for his future. So she decided, being a, a magician and, and a sorceress, that she would give him some kind of advantage. So she decided she would brew him a cauldron of wisdom. So she set about this in the good old alchemical ma manner by putting a cauldron on the fire and gathering herbs each in their season. And she found a blind man to stir the cauldron. and a little little boy called Guion to fetch wood to keep the fire bubbling away while she trotted around the woods collecting her herbs and spices and what have you and she gradually builds up this potion which she was going to give to her son and as the time comes for the fulfilment of it the year and the day sort of up and it bubble, bubbled away to uh, quite a distillation unfortunately the um, the young lad is stirring it a bit too vigorously and uh, a spot splashes out onto his finger or his thumb and being like anybody who gets scalded he immediately puts his finger to his mouth and absorbs the, the wisdom that was distilled in this potion and the cauldron then splits and causes the first um, chemical accident recorded uh, by running down into the river and poisoning all the horses of the neighbourhood so, uh, you know, we have industrial pollution even in uh, very early times. And of course, Caridwin comes back and he's absolutely furious because she was just about to give this stuff to her son to give him great wisdom. And, and Gwion, the little boy, realises that uh, he's for the chop because, you know, not only has, has taken over this potion, but that he's, he absorbs all knowledge. And of course, he, he realises that uh, Caridwin will not let him alone so, having not only gained wisdom, he has gained the ability to change his shape. So, he immediately decides safety in flight and he turns himself into a blackbird, flies into the air. And Caridwin, being a, a goddess and sort of three grades higher than him in magic, changes herself into a, a hawk and, and pursues him through the sky. And then he realises this isn't going to work so he dives into a river and turns into a fish and she turns into an otter and chases him through the water and the third transformation he changes himself into a grain of wheat and he then dives into a pile of winnowed wheat and she changes herself into a hen and sets about eating all this wheat and finally swallows him and, and then she finds she's pregnant and she brings him forth as a child in, in nine months time and he's so beautiful she can't kill him so she puts him in a leather bag or coracle depending on which version of the story you read and chucks him in the local river and he washes up against somebody else's salmon weir and the Gwizno 
goes down to the salmon weir to see if he's got any fish for dinner and finds instead an incipient poet uh, with, with bright red hair by all accounts which is why he's called Taliesin he takes him out and this, this lad grows up to be a very wise man Taliesin who is a kind of forerunner of Merlin there are lots of parallels between the two stories that he's a, a poet, he's a healer he's a magician and he's got all this stored wisdom and he lives for many years telling many stories both about his own life and and building up a whole series of, of riddling material because the, the Celtic people had this oral tradition because it was all stories and words they had to conceal in it all their secret knowledge I mean they, it wasn't like reading off great chunks of the Encyclopedia Celtica they actually had to speak riddling poetry which concealed the knowledge so that people could hear it and just think it was an interesting poem there's a very famous poem called The Battle of the Trees which is yards long describing all the different trees and how they are supposed to have fought a battle well I mean modern co commentators read this and say oh yes well you know they're obviously into horticulture and this is a description of all the kind of trees that grew in their forest wise men like Robert Graves began to see that this was actually a riddle and was concealing not merely a lot of knowledge about what trees were to be found in Britain at the time the thing was written but that each tree represented a letter of the alphabet this is, this is known in, in Irish Gaelic and in Scots Gaelic that the letters of the alphabet are named after trees I mean not like ours A, B, C and all that they're, they're the names of actual trees and this battle is really a story of, of how literature how the written word began to take over from the oral tradition and there are lots of references to the way the, the alphabet is constructed so it's, it's quite a, a complicated thing and it, it's not fully understood even now various poets and people have had a go at re-translating re it of course it's, most of it was written down in about the 12th century so it was old then it was several many hundreds of years old six or seven hundred <coughs> years old assuming it only goes back to the time of Arthur and probably a lot of this stuff goes back a thousand years before that so it was, it was an oral tradition which was told as poetry and sung as songs and recorded at, at festivals and things so when it got written down then, then it was very late on and of course a lot has been lost and of course in translation where you're translating from very early Welsh I mean even some of the names of the trees they don't know exactly which tree it relates to in modern times but what's so fascinating is that we have all these these threads, these fragments and unlike Egyptian archaeology where you have pot shards, you have pieces of sculpture, you have pictures of the gods and all that kind of thing the Celts didn't leave those kind of artefacts they didn't depict their gods, their gods were things that were part of nature you couldn't depict the force of water except by saying it's water you couldn't depict the force of air except by sort of being aware of the air and the birds flying in the sky and the clouds so it's a very different sort of history that we have and, and it's taken so long before people have taken this stuff seriously I mean there are lots and lots of these enormously complicated stories m many of them written in Welsh which were never translated until the end of the last century there are huge chunks in the Welsh libraries which haven't been translated yet telling of, of the hero tales and, and a lot of this like the the way that we worry about the Amazonian jungles destroying the rainforest because you're destroying plants which might be useful all this sort of historic information is lying there ready to be interpreted because they did have methods of healing they did have methods of achieving knowledge and working with spiritual traditions they did have magical spells, prayers you might say which linked them with nature because nature was important and they, they lived very close to the land and we because of our industrial heritage are beginning to see the mistakes that in industry has made and therefore we are beginning to see the value of being close to nature and this is why a lot of people in their religion in their spiritual views in their life activities are beginning to say well come on we must save the rainforest 
but equally we must save our own mythology and look at some of these traditions and say well what can we learn from them what can we learn about bringing up children what can we learn about using plants working with nature working with the seasons to bring ourselves into harmony because harmony with the earth works to bring harmony within us and by using these ancient stories in the way that they were intended not just as sort of light bedtime reading but as a multi-layered sort of sandwich to meditate on to look at each piece of symbolism to look at each bird and each animal and the way that people somehow could transform part of their being into an animal and fly through the air you know the, the bookshops are full of excellent books written by Mexican shamans or you know, supposed Mexican shamans or by people who've, who've uncovered lumps of knowledge from far distant places and yet that same sort of knowledge within our own culture does exist and, and we, we can get at it but it's, it's harder, it's much easier if you can go and find a nice easy book that explains you know, how, you, how if you happen to be in a desert you can transform yourself into a shadow so you, you can drift away and, and learn, learn things from the desert animals I mean the, the Celtic people had very much the same idea of being able to go into the shape to imagine what it would be like to be an eagle or a blackbird or a hare or a greyhound or whatever it is and transform yourself into that creature and learn something about their life because the more you understand other beings, other kinds of life, the more you understand yourself and equally the more you understand yourself the more sympathy you are bound to have with other people and other beings and other you know, levels of things it is a treasure house, it's an enormous vast area covering many thousands of years and many thousands of miles of countryside the stories, the grail legends for example make sense in Britain, in Ireland they make sense in Persia, Iran you find exactly the same kind of stories all over Europe interpreted into the, the flora and fauna of that land and, and the idea of, of the power, powers of nature being embodied in nature not embodied in the, the sort of personified gods which the Romans had and it's one of the, the great battles between the Celts and the Romans was the fact that the, the Romans wanted the Celts to worship the emperor and worship statues and the, the Celts quite rightly said well you know you, somebody made those statues a man carved that statue and an, your emperor is, is patently a man, a living person you know, we, we worship a tree or, or a, a sunset or a pool in the ground because that was made by nature you, you can't go round creating a tree you can make a, a facsimile of a tree but only nature can make a real tree and therefore that is holy a statue anyone could make if they have the time and energy and, and there is this quite, quite, it's quite an important part of their, their belief that, 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 their, that nature, the gods the power of creation could make holy things but it is a huge it is a huge subject and it's not easy to know which part would would appeal to you most but anyway that's giving you a sort of broad flit round the some of the Celtic mythology but it, please if you have questions or you want to discuss things or argue by all means feel free is there anybody today who can do that Anybody left in our society or in our world that can do that anymore? What to, to change? Transform themselves into other forms of life. You know, in India, is there anybody that can do it? Well, I mean, many people, many people who study the Celtic traditions do it as a as a it's a mental process. Yes, you yes. have to realise it's not a physical process. It's not a physical. No, you don't turn your body into a fish or a dog or anything. But your mind, you can become like how how you feel to be a bird or something yes it's a, it is a form of the the celtic form of meditation yes, involves yes. this kind of thing yes yes, yes. It's, it's never been a physical process at all no i think this is you see this is where people find problems reading books about particularly shamans who are who are known through the world for changing into animals mm -hmm. i mean they usually dress up this is the whole idea of totem animals the celts had totem animals as well the, the idea of being able to change into an animal people reading it today think that 
these people turned physically into an animal, whereas it's actually a mental state. As far as they were concerned, physically they would just be sitting still with their eyes shut. You know, quite mm. a boring process to watch. But inside their mind, through what you might call astral travel or deep meditation, you can enter a state where you can project your awareness into an actual bird or into what it would feel like to be that bird. I mean, they used to say that witches would change themselves into an elder tree and that's what you did, you know, hide. Yes. And, and they were under the impression it was a physical process. The witch actually got into the elder tree to conceal herself against the people who were chasing her. Well, she probably did. I mean, she would pro You see, again, magic teaches you how to be invisible. You don't become invisible by sort of fading out like, you, like they do in science fiction films. Mm -hmm. But maybe the, the witch would get into an elder bush and become so still yes. and, and by feeling part of that tree yes. that the people who were looking for her would see the tree yes, and they wouldn't see the, the human shape in it. Yes. I mean witches were supposed to change into hares, again another sacred animal yes. and, and this again was probably their friends saying you know, if, if, if people were hunting somebody, they would say, oh, have you seen old Mother Hubbard run down the road? And they'd say, oh, no, but there were some hares playing in the field. Yes, that's I saw a hare in the field, because hares leap about and rush around. So, they, it wasn't, you know, it's a disguise. And probably old Mother Hubbard was crouched under the hedge, being as still as a hare. You know, with two fingers sticking up like ears. <laughs> you see, again, you see, if you're working with animals, not in the, seeing them in zoos, but being actually close to them, observing where they would feed, what they would eat. You learn a lot about plants, you learn a lot about animal behaviour. I mean, if a horse lies down in a field and you're trying to hide and you can lie down next to that horse, yeah. no one will see you because they'll see a horse lying down in a field or a cow. And, and you know, it's surprising how you can learn to disguise yourself. But a real life poet called Taliesin, yes. Was that story um, about him, or what is the difference between the two? Well, this is, this is the sort of mytho-historical problem. It's like Arthur was a historical character. I mean, there's plenty of evidence that the king of the 6th century existed. But there's no historical evidence for Merlin, although the king would have an advisor. There was a poet called Taliesin who wrote poetry and signed it Taliesin. But whether it was the same person as the sort of myth mythological hero Taliesin who'd been turned from various things, there, there seems to be a kind of continuation of title. One of the things that you find in ancient mythology throughout the world is that what you think of as gods and heroes have titles like Taliesin means radiant brow, means, I mean either because he had red hair or a flaming red forehead having got sunburnt. So anybody who had red hair could be called Taliesin, like Caridwin, the white sow, the, the, the set of the, the, other, the other aspects of the goddess which are sometimes used and um, people who are interested in the Celtic goddesses, you have Arianrod, who is, who is a full moon goddess. Her name literally means silver wheel. So she's the full moon. I mean, perfectly. So any sort of moon goddess could be called the silver wheel because it it applies. The, the third one of the is is Frianon, and her name means maiden of Anun. Frian, maiden Anun. So she was the the goddess of the underworld, and and her story is very much about that. That she comes out from the underworld, very much the story of Kore and Persephone, which you find in Greek mythology. Are the uh, rhythms that we use to tell these stories yes. still known? Yes, yes, because people who can read the original language can work out what the harp rhythms were. And they're really quite strange because we know in modern times about um, alpha and beta waves of brain waves. And of course, though harp music is much slower, if you play a certain kind of harp music, that affects the brain waves of the people who are listening to it and also I mean if people were listening with their eyes shut they would then get into a different state of mind very much like a modern meditation technique and they would therefore this would enhance their ability to see and hear these other these other worldly things 
And perhaps on another occasion I'll bring along some tapes of, of some people singing and chanting some of this Celtic. If I'd known you had hi-fi here, I would have brought it tonight. Mm-hmm. So singing some of the songs based on the, the Celtic hero myth, myth cycle. I shouldn't be at all surprised because I think that I mean the perpetual choirs weren't just singing hymns they were singing again great long chunks of the Bible and things and again it probably would have been orchestrated by these these harp arpeggios and um, and sort of simple it's hard to say they're tuned it's quite difficult to ex- explain what the music sounds like without without actually having some to play but it, 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 it's very much sound effects rather than, as I said, more like the accompaniment to a silent film than music in the sense of music that you would listen to as music. It's very much to heighten your awareness. When there was a battle, the music would be... And, and when, it, when it was a, somebody travelling down a river, it would be ripply river sort of music to, to suggest the, the experience. But it, it's fascinating that people are able to pick this stuff up and I mean, by tuning into the, the poetry and the way it was probably, the, or the sort of music that would have accompanied it, they're actually getting a lot more out of it, which then leads them to be able to understand more about the stories, which then leads them to find out more about the music. And there's, there's quite a lot of work. Bob Stewart from Bath is doing a lot of work on ancient forms of music. He plays a gorgeous thing, the, the ancient psaltery which is very sort of evocative as far as music goes it really awakens sort of deep levels of, of awareness and it's very good music for meditation and things like that but I mean a lot of the Celtic mythology does talk about people going into our noon and they do occasionally refer to these other sort of levels of being in kind of in passing but because you see a lot of the the Victorian translators people like Charlotte Guest um, was eight, well, early 19th century because they didn't really understand the concept they just, just sort of copied down the word or they just, just translated it as a word without translating it as a sort of as it were a religious or spiritual concept so it makes it harder to uh, understand um, well I suppose you had to call the letters of the alphabet something and it, it, it seems that they did actually... Well, one, one of the things was that when... I mean, the Druids could write. They, they used Greek quite a lot, but I mean, that's much later. They, they used two forms of writing. One was, was the ogums or oems, which are straight lines struck onto the corner of a, of a squared... either a squared stick or a, or a squared stone. And these are a series of straight lines, either at right angles to the corner or at different angles to it so that you actually have a, a series of 24 letters 26 letters but there seems to be evidence that the Druids had a, a system of communicating with each other by take, especially in the summer where you just took leaves off the various trees and you, you'd send a message which was each leaf represented a letter so you could as it were thread a stick of, of leaves and the recipient, I mean it might not spell out every word letter by letter but it might be enough to give the recipient the idea that this was a, a message about a particular thing and because the Druidic sacred place was a grove a grove implies a collection of different kinds of trees and so I mean, it's, it's said that the Druidic training took 20 years. Well, I mean, if you think about becoming an architect, it still takes 20 years. So, you know, you start at seven and you end at 27, you're just about qualified. But the, the Druidic people might well have planted their sacred grove when they were students or taken saplings and planted them somewhere so that when they finished their training, they had a, a 20-year-old grove of trees of all the sacred trees or as many of them as would grow in a particular place I mean if you down here it's very hard to find oak trees whereas where I come from in Surrey there are plenty of oak trees but not very many of the you know the rock loving trees that you get in this part of the world and so probably they would have cultivated the 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 particular sorts of trees that were used in their alphabet there must have been local variation I mean there are things like heather which is hardly a tree 
and firs, gorse, and a lot of the fruit trees, raspberries come in, privet, as well as sort of can grow oak trees and uh, hazel, ash, alder, and most of the sort of common trees. And in fact there is a form of druidic divination which is something I'm doing some research on where you have a stick from each of the, the, the special trees which like say tarot cards or you know any of these other divination systems represents a sort of idea and you have this bundle of sticks which make a lovely sort of clattering noise and you shake them together and you shake them and some of them fly out and then you read them at, like across between reading tea leaves and reading the tarot because you get each, each tree represents a concept like ash trees the wood of ash trees was used for the king's throne it was also used for spears or for tool handles and those kind of things so it represents authority and work and the work ethic and that kind of idea I mean this, this is, there, there is a, a sort of ancient set of knowledge of, of this sort of thing the alder is imperishable the wood, wood of alder was used for bridge, bridge piles and a lot of the ancient roads of Glastonbury are alder twigs laid down in a marsh because alderwood just doesn't rot and it's there forever so that represents a sort of eternal concept a rather Saturn sort of if you use your planets and these things relate to the planets and they relate to other other systems of, of it's not really fortune telling but you can, you can see aspects of um, a situation by the, the imagery that comes out from each of the trees things like holly you see which of course is a protective tree but it's also holly and ivy that you get at Christmas and, and trees, you see, have even come through into our heritage and we've re reintroduced the Christmas tree. The fir tree was used in the decorations at Yuletide, um, certainly in very early times. And it's fun to have celebrations and go out and look for the right kind of tree and see if your mayflowers are blossoming on May Day. And, well, I mean, you take, take things like the Ice Steadfold, where the idea of chairing the bard, that you can win it a great prize I mean it's not, not valuable in money terms but you can win renown you can win fame and, and, and glory through writing a poem I mean that shows the height of culture or singing a song I mean admittedly the sort of I said for the, the, the ceremony that goes on for that was invented in the 18th century by Iolo Morganog um, a Welsh historian who sort of decided it would be rather fun to have these little maidens prancing around and and doing the bit about is it peace in the east and all that but um, I mean it, it's a wonderful thing to watch and, and that, that, um, that the person who gets chosen as the chaired bard I mean it's, it's, it's a one, it must be a wonderful experience to be able to, to win a prize of a chair you know <laughs> marvellous just through, write, through writing a poem or constructing a, um, a dissertation or something fascinating sort of 